0: 1 Kings 8 and 1 Kings 11. Whoa, that's, that was. Dude, I have no comment. <laughs> All right, 1 Kings 8, verse 41. <laughs> Likewise, when a foreigner who is—this is, by the way, this is Solomon talking. It's his prayer that the temple is just built. He's dedicating, so this is his prayer. So, 8:41. Likewise. When a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, the temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to do, in order that all the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, may know your name and fear you as do your people, Israel. And that, um, and that they may know that this house, this temple that I have built, is called by your name. Now chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. So that's really good. He builds a temple. He's calling for all the nations to come pray to it. But verse 11 changes our story. Now, uh, verse 11, chapter 11 changes our story. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sodinian, the Hittite woman, basically from all the nations which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away from their gods. So Solomon clung to these in love. <sighs> these means he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you. (laughs) And his wives turned away his heart, as God had said. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Let us pray. Lord, we come tonight expecting for you to teach us from your word about your story We want to know it. We want to be part of it. We want to participate in it. And so, Lord, we relinquish our control and our story. We give the page, the blank page to you, Father, tonight. Write. Write your words on our hearts and in our minds. We ask. Because of Jesus. Amen. So, let me summarize quick. In the beginning, God created a kingdom. We call it creation. He gave this kingdom to man, to be his underkings, to rule over it on his behalf. But in a moment of weakness, man sides with the serpent and rebels, and the kingdom is corrupted. God gave it to him in Genesis 2 and said, basically, he doesn't say this actual wording, but the idea is behind there. It's there. He says, Expand this garden, the garden of being expand it to the ends of the earth. I want you to make the world. Cultured like this garden. Because it's my home. It's my presence. And they rebel. And instead of growing it. They corrupt it. And so man is in an exiled state. And God seeks to bring all of the nations back to himself. In a a place like Eden. Through Israel. So he takes Israel. And he gives them a mission. What's their mission? To cultivate restoration among the nations. And restoration means that they're bringing those nations back to where they belong. With God. To live in his presence, in um, a, an Edenic-like place. A very a very good world, a very lush world where God's presence dwells and he manifests himself. Now, last week, do you recall the Davidic covenant? God comes and makes a promise with David. He says, you're going to have... You're never going to lack a son to sit on your throne. So your throne is going to last forever in your family. Your kingdom will be forever. And your son is going to build me a house, a temple that will last forever. Well, here we come to his first son to take the throne, Solomon. And Solomon does just that. He builds a temple and he expands the kingdom far greater than David had ever done it. David got the ball rolling. Solomon takes charge, and full peace is every border of Israel secured with peace. In fact, um, well I'll show you that in, in a little minute. So Solomon takes full control. The kingdom is soared to its peak. It's better than ever before. In fact, in two places in First Kings, it says that silver was counted as nothing. Like if you could barter with silver in the marketplace and the buyers would say, I don't want your silver or the sellers. I don't, I don't want your silver. It's worth nothing. Give me gold. That's all that matters around here. That's how rich this kingdom had become, how prosperous it was. And so Solomon had built the temple, the house of God. And he established peace and prosperity in the kingdom. With these things together, Israel was primed to now make the restoration happen across the world to every nation. They were primed and ready. But, like Adam, Solomon falls. And he doesn't do his task. He was more concerned, I will show you, in establishing his own status amongst the nations. I'm someone great. I'm someone worthy. I'm the greatest king of the greatest kingdom right now. More concerned with establishing his status among the nations than establishing restoration among the nations. He lost sight of that that mission that God had given him to bring restoration. And instead he turned it inward and said, but I'm someone great and sought to elevate self over God's story. And that's a question you guys need to address right now with yourselves and God is, am I more concerned with my story that I'm in control or that people recognize that my life is about me and making a name for myself? Or am I more concerned with God's story? I just, I just give up my story and I want to live in his and for his. Yeah, it may mean that you're not going to get to pump your name up. You're pumping up Christ's name. But are you okay with that? Because Solomon wasn't. Solomon bought the idea that he'd be happiest in his story. And that's what we're going to see is the downfall of Solomon and how status is the enemy of the mission to restore the nations to God. Your concern for status is the enemy to God's mission. So, let's look here. As, like I told you, I'll show you um, what's going on. Chapter 8 is important because... In chapter 8, it's long. You notice that? Um, very long. 66 verses. This whole section with the temple's long because it's a big deal. When the temple is built and finished, this whole chapter 8 is after it's built. Solomon is just talking and praying this magnificent prayer of dedicating this building to God... And the length of its importance. This is showing us that Israel is now ready to restore the nations. The temple's built. The place where God's going to come and live in the midst of Israel and his presence and the, the restoration he wants to spread to the nations is there, and Israel's ready to, to bring it to the na- They've got the building now. They've got everything established, peace is established. They've got the, the money, if you want to call it, those kingdoms at its height. They control all the trade routes to the Middle East. They're set. And to show you that, that's why we read verses uh, eight forty one. This is what Solomon says in the prayer. He says, "When a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name'sake, see what he's saying. When people from other nations hear about you, God, and want to come to this temple to find restoration in you, let it happen." He's praying. He's basically saying, God, this temple I've built for you is a house. It's a meeting place of restoration for every nation. That's what I want it to be. I want every foreigner and nation and tribe and language to come here and to find their home in you. So Solomon is like a new Adam. And this temple is like a new Eden. And Solomon's got the mission to bring this presence of God to the nations. That's exactly what Israel, when God gave the promise to David that he's going to have a kingdom and there's going to always be a king in the kingdom, basically what he's doing is he's giving David an Eden, your kingdom's Eden, and the king is going to be like an Adam, he's going to be my underking, ruling the kingdom to get it to the people. So the people can be restored and freed and released from their burdens and from their exile. So that's what Solomon represents here. He's a new Adam. Let me show you. Um, Remember how Adam... Go to 424. Remember how Adam was to subdue the earth? It said in Genesis, "You're You're to subdue the earth. Conquer it. Well, that's what Solomon does in 424. Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tishvah to Gaza, Over all the kings west of the Euphrates. Check this out. He had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan of Beersheba. Every man under his vine. And under his fig tree. All the days of Solomon. (laughs) What that basically says is there's so much peace. Peace. And prosperity going on in his subduing the land that they were just able to kick back. Every man had their own tree, their own garden in their backyard, and they're all kicking back on their estate, reading from their Kindles and their iPads and playing along on their Xboxes and just, that's their life. They were doing really, really well. Prosperity had entered. And so like Adam's commission to subdue the earth, Solomon is exercising that. Um, Look at 433. Remember how Adam named the animals and God said have dominion over creation? And in this time, to name something was to have dominion over it. So if I name you Hannah, if I change your name to like Sarah, that means I control you. Of course, I don't we don't do that in this culture. I can't just change your name. But it, that's what Solomon's doing in 433. Watch how he's having dominion over creation. It says he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke of the beasts and the birds and the reptiles and the fish. See, he has all this knowledge and understanding. He's showing his dominion over this creation. He's informing people about it, just like Adam was to cultivate the garden and know everything that came about creation and bring all its potentials out. Well, Solomon is working on that. And you see some of his writings in the Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. Just some of them. And then, finally, in I remember how Adam was a priest? God gave him that role in the garden to protect it and to work it, to expand it. He was a priest in that garden. He was garden was a temple. Well, here's Solomon acting as a priest in 8.62. So the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered his peace offerings to the Lord and astronomical number of animals. A lot of blood, a lot of bleeding, and bleating, and a lot of that going on. Solomon was acting as a priest. So, we see that he is in many ways typifying Adam. So, Israel, here you go. Restoration time. You got your Adam leading. And the temple is now in place as a new Eden. This is where the God presence lives. This is where the restoration happens. Um, For example, the temple, the building of it was, was based around a series of sevens, the number seven. Just like it took seven days to create the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. I mean, 638, it says that it took seven years to build the temple. In 8 verse 2, it says that Solomon dedicated the temple on the seventh month. And in 8, verse 65, it says that the dedication of the temple lasted for seven days. So, it took seven years to build. He dedicated it on the seventh month for seven days. A lot of sevens going on there because the author's connecting the temple with creation to show that, yes, this repetition, repetition of sevens is based upon creation because, like the tabernacle, was a microcosm of creation and the Garden of Eden, so is the temple. It's a microcosm of creation in the Garden of Eden. You guys remember when we looked at the tabernacle, how I showed you guys several ways that the tabernacle looked like the Garden of Eden? It was a replica of creation. If you don't, just, oh yeah, I remember now, I got it. Well, I'll show you a couple ways that that's true at the temple. The temple is supposed to, you guys know what a microcosm is. It's like a small miniature scale of something, a small model. The temple is to become this like creation garden, and God was to live in it, just like Eden. For example, it had plants. Lots and lots of plants. I counted at least 12 verses. There might have been 13, because I, I didn't want to go back and recount, but I think I missed one. So there might be 13 verses that talk about... Plants being engraved in the pillars, on the walls, and um, all these statues and everything. There's just plants engraved everywhere. They're trying to give it the appearance of a lush garden, of a a prosperous created place. And animals, in 7 verse 29, there's animals carved. There's lions and oxen mentioned. And then there's a sea in this temple. And remember in the tabernacle there's just like this little like water basin where the priests would wash their hands? But in the tabernacle, it got massive. It, they, that's why they called it no longer the bronze laver. They now called it the sea. Because this thing was a huge bowl held by 12 oxen all facing the four points of the compass. And inside this bowl was water. 12,000 gallons of water in this bowl. So that's why they called it the sea. So you have plants, you have animals, you have a sea. And now you have the the sky is represented in the tavern and the temple. Um, many scholars suggest that the reason there was so much gold in the temple and tabernacle is that when you'd walk in, you would have the candle stand right there with the seven lights flickering. And that minimal light in that dark room would Reflect off of the gold on every wall and give the appearance of the starry hosts of the heavens. So you had basically all the elements of creation: plants, animals, sea, and sky. So it typifies um, creation and Eden. So this is basically what that means: is this is the spot. Where exiled humanity meets God and he restores them to himself, to where they're intended to be. But that was the same purpose of the tabernacle. So what's the difference between the temple and the tabernacle? I suggest it's this. That the tabernacle was built for Israel to come meet with God and be restored. So that they can begin to cultivate that restoration in their culture. But the temple, based upon Solomon's words, to me seems to be more focused on the nations. To restore them. So Israel is in this place of restoration. They have this worship going on with the tabernacle. It moves into the temple to become this grand spot on, the, on Zion, which is where Jerusalem would be built around. Like It's on top of a hill. So... It becomes the center of the earth, this place where the nations are to come and there to find restoration with God. So that's the purpose of the temple is for the nations. Does this happen? We don't actually read of many foreigners coming to Israel. Perhaps they did. I would have to believe that some did. But Kings is very selective here in what it shows us. And that's where chapter 11 comes into play with Solomon and his wives. The only foreigners we read of coming to Israel after the temple is Solomon's wives. It says he loved many foreign women. That means girls from all the nations. And they're coming to Jerusalem and you would think Right? You would think that Solomon would take them to the temple. And introduce him, them to Yahweh. And have them be restored with God. Through the temple. But we don't read that he does that anywhere. In fact, quite the opposite. The na- these women representing the nations. They're, they're coming to Solomon. And rather than taking them to the temple to be restored... He builds them their own temples to keep their own idolatrous cultures in the midst of Israel. So, rather than take him to the temple, the reverse happens. They begin to pull Solomon's heart away from the temple, away from God. And where Solomon was to lead Israel to restore the nations, the nations now came and led Solomon into their culture. Solomon must be the leader. Taking the nations with him to God. But now the nations reverse that. And they're pulling Solomon away from God. Because he did not take them to the temple. That was the structure of restoration where God wanted to meet with man. Well, yeah. you're. And I got all the 700 wives. 300 concubines. And it mentioned princes. I don't even know if those princesses were in those numbers or not. That's a, that's a thousand women. That's... You guys can do the math, right? How many dates you'd have to go on just to keep status with them? A year? That's like three dates a day, right? That'd <laughs> be No, it wouldn't. You just wait, sir. <laughs> that many wouldn't be fun. One would. But they're all coming, that many, and Solomon just says, okay, here's your temple, you just do your own thing, your own culture, we got our own little temple Here. And what slowly began to happen was that Solomon wasn't leading the nation to cultivate the nations. The nations were leading Solomon in their way. And that wasn't the way that God intended. He's just like Adam. Supposed to kick the serpent out and continue cultivating the garden. But Solomon, supposed to bring those nations to the temple, but doesn't. Both of them fall. Both of them fail. And it sets corruption in Adam set corruption in the garden. It, it pretty much corroded. And Solomon brings corruption into Israel at this point. And from this point on, Israel, from their peak, continually goes. you can pretty much on the graph just straight down. Maybe a couple little glitches. Like literally just little. Like one king's reign. Oh, we're doing good. And until they're done. He introduces corruption. So why didn't, this is what I want to ask Why didn't Solomon take his wives to the temple? Why didn't he cultivate restoration in their lives, in his own household, for crying out loud? Why didn't he? I mean, when we looked at 8 verse 41, it was very clear that Solomon wanted the nations to be restored. He said, God, let foreigners come to this place and meet you and be restored to you, and let's expand your kingdom to the ends of the earth. That was his desire. But then he gets these women and doesn't do it. Why? I want to suggest that the reason is because Solomon became an idolator. He he got involved in idolatry. And idolatry blinded his vision for God's mission. Idolatry blinded his concept that I'm here to bring these nations to restoration. He didn't even see it because of idolatry. But Brandon... Didn't he fall into idolatry after the wives came in to play and pulled his heart away from God? No. I would suggest that the wives pulling him away from God to their idols was where his idolatry ended up. But his idolatry started much sooner than that. So before I show you where and how, um, let's understand idolatry real quick let's, so that we know what we're talking about here. Idolatry, anything, person, place, thing, idea, I just put nouns, all the nouns in there. Anything where you find status, purpose, contentment, meaning, satisfaction, anything that you find those in becomes an idol. To quote Tim Keller, his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, and I, I quoted this when we were in 1 John, some of you might remember it. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If only I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. Then I'll have value. If only I have that. That, whatever that is that you're finding those answers for, that is an idol. And there's only one way to describe that kind of relationship. It's, it's just obsession. It's worship. It's, it's finding in that what only God can provide for you. So if only God can provide it, but you're finding it here, what you're essentially doing is you're, this is now God for me. Because it's going to give me what only God should and could give to me. So this is why Colossians 3.5 calls idolatry, do you guys know what it, it calls it? It calls it covetousness. Or actually, if you put it the other way, He calls covetousness idolatry. Now, how? We know what covetousness is. It's that yearning, that craving to have something that doesn't belong to you. To possess it. How does that relate to idolatry? I think that John Piper gives us a good suggestion when he says, covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in Christ. You want something so much that God is no longer exactly enough for you. You will feel better only when that is given to me. So you can see that there's this covetousness, this overwhelming desire can lead you to be dissatisfied with God and thus make you find satisfaction in something else making that become your God because that's giving to you what only God should and ought and could give to you. So you're establishing an idol through your covetousness. And the most subtle way this <clears throat> the most subtle way this happens to us is in the idol that I've called before and the idol and that's the idol that you tag on with Jesus. And we don't think of it as an idol. Because we say, Jesus still has the lead. And this is just kind of dangling around him too. It's like not as important. Jesus is totally more important. But I like these things too. And I'm finding satisfaction in these. And sometimes maybe a little more than Jesus. But Jesus is still way more important. So we get into this thing like, Jesus and if only I had a boyfriend. Jesus and if only I had a car. Jesus and only if I had my driver's license. Jesus and only if, 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 if. Go back. <laughs> That's the idol, end. The one we tag on. But that's, that's still an idol. That's what the first commandment means in Exodus 20 verse 3. When it says, you shall have no other gods before me. Before is not speaking of priority. Like God is before everything else. It's speaking of territory. Here's God. There shall be nothing in front of me. God wants all of us. And doesn't want to share any of us. That's what he's looking for. Everything else is idolatry. So then where does Solomon fall into this? Solomon didn't find contentment in God. We'll start there. He began to have covetous desires... He coveted the idea of me, Solomon, having status, recognition, popularity, admiration amongst the nations. Here we are, a wealthy nation, and I'm going to wreck myself. Just, I'm the king of kings now. Status became his idol. The desire for recognition, the desire for being somebody, And that was no longer being found in God. His value and meaning and satisfaction in life had to come from his own status. Look at some of the ways he does this. In 11 verse 3, we already saw his wives. 700. Come on. Like, seriously? If one wasn't enough, I mean, after 12? One a month? Like, is is there ever an end? Okay, maybe 365 I mean, if you're that way, one day of the year, but 700? And then if that wasn't enough, oh yeah, I was out of 300 concubines, which are basically not quite wives. They're like underneath wives, but they're part of the family. So they had all the relationships with Solomon as wives, but they weren't actually wives. So basically they're servants for the family. The real use of having these concubines as servants was they were servants to make babies to, to ensure that he had enough offspring. Just in case 700 of his wives couldn't make babies, he to get 300 backups, I guess. Uh, he, so, harem. That's called a harem. When kings hoard up women, 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 that whole collection of girls is called their harem. Status is what it meant. Because it's not, honestly, like we joke about it and we think like in our culture, like, oh my gosh, 700, 300, oh that's crazy, 1,000, what... It's not quite like that to Solomon. It wasn't necessarily like he's like bored with you, bored with you, bored with you, get another one. It was more of the long lines that when you married in this culture with another country, let's say you took the daughter of Egypt, Egypt's king. When you guys married, you now had a a treaty with Egypt. You now had status with the Egyptian king. You would maybe make deals, make trades, you had friendship. So what Solomon's doing is he's bridging out to every nation he possibly can and making status with them. He's trying to elevate himself. And the more women you had, the more powerful you're considered. Because to get a king or queen's daughter, you had to be somebody special to be trusted with that. You had to be somebody that that king wanted to make a treaty with you for. And so, apparently worked for him 700 times. He's got status amongst the nations. Uh, in 1028, he goes for horses. It says, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. So he's accumulating a bunch of horses from Egypt. Horses are a sign of power. Horses are expensive. And he's going to get the finest horses in Egypt. By the way, the accumulation of women and horses were two commands God specifically forbade any king of Israel to do. In Deuteronomy 17, 16, and 17. Deuteronomy 17, 16. God says, no king Shall accumulate a mass number of wives, and no king shall go to Egypt for horses. Because I brought you out of Egypt, and you're not going back. So, look what Solomon's doing. He's importing other cultures through his women and through the horses. He's not cultivating culture for restoration. And finally, his house. Chapter 7. Um, we're not actually going to read anything there, but that's where it talks about his house. And the interesting thing is, is it's pitted in the very middle of this whole narrative about the temple. He builds a temple for seven years. And in the very middle of this whole process, it says, and he built his house for 13 years. And if you look, this this is worth the whole message. You've probably heard it before somewhere downstairs. I think I gave it. Um, The whole literature of these 11 chapters of 1 Kings is organized to show that the building of his own house is what made Solomon fall. Because leading up to the building of the house in chapter 7, everything's going good. He's becoming wise, he loves God, he's using all of his resources for the nation. Then he builds his house and everything goes downhill. He begins to use resources for himself. His heart turns away from the Lord. Enemies start to rise up against him. The peace is gone. Because he builds his own house. He's he's obsessed for 13 years with his status. My palace. So that when the Queen of Sheba, chapter 10, comes to see my palace, she's ood and odd, and I have status. And what this led to, this idol of status, then led to his idolatry with his women. So that's Solomon's idolatry. In writing his own story, that's what he basically did here, his desire for status. He took the pen from God and said, that's my story now. I am great! <laughs> I'm flying across the world! And in doing that, writing his own story... He mislocated his place in God's story. He lost vision of the mission. He didn't know what to do, where to go, what the purpose was. That's why he has a thousand women leading him into idolatry and the nation with him. All right. So this desire for status sets the tone for Israel's history. You guys know this. From this point on, the kingdom splits. It's two kingdoms out of Israel. Both of them go downhill really fast. Both of them get in exile. They're gone. Um, Solomon's desire for status here sets the tone. And from this point on, never do you see the temple being the center of restoration for the nations. From this point on, the temple becomes an emblem of Israelite pride. It's no longer the center of restoration among the nations. It's now a symbol of status amongst the nations. We're Israel. We have Yahweh's temple. Nobody else does. He chose us. And they begin to get this nationalistic pride. And of course, it was increased a hundredfold when Jesus came on the scene. You guys would know, especially in Acts. If you read Acts, you'll see that sense of nationalistic pride. It's where it starts from Solomon. Solomon. He leads the nation in the sense of status, more important than restoration for the nations. We want a name for ourselves. We want a story for ourselves. So then Jesus comes on board in the New Testament and fixes all of this. By saying, enough with status, Israel. It's about restoration. And here I am, the new temple. I'm replacing that one because you guys used it for your own status. I'm going to now become the temple for restoration. So he inserts himself, and in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus tells the Jews, after he goes through the temple that's there, throws out all the anti-restoration practices and people that are going on in there, all those things are going for status in there, he throws them out, and the Jews come and say, Who are you? I'm the new temple. It's my translation. He says, Destroy this body, and I will build it up. Or he says, Destroy this temple, I'll build it up in three days. What he meant, John comments is that Jesus was saying, when I rise from the dead, I will be the new temple, this body, and I'm going to join exiled peoples and restore them to myself. You see, as, as Solomon was to build the temple and the nations were to come and find restoration with God at the temple, Jesus is that temple. The nations, we have come to Jesus and we've found restoration in Him. He is the meeting place of God. And so, where Solomon and Israel said, no, you guys aren't coming to the temple, Jesus stood up and said, everybody. It's in John chapter um, 12, verse 32. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, talking about His death and resurrection, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. Get it, Israel? Get it, you Solomonites? I will draw all people to myself. Because you're not doing it. I am that temple. This is grand and glorious. So, this, this teaches me, this should teach you, that the church, our aim here is not to find and gain status amongst the nations. I'm sick and tired of watching churches desiring to be cool and hip with the worldly culture. I'm sorry. We're not here for status, we're not here for popularity. We're here for restoration. That every nation sees us as that. So, three lessons from Solomon to close. Um, Solomon desired status rather than restoration amongst nations. So, what can the church do? We're aiming for restoration, not our status. Three lessons from Solomon. Number one, you guys. Bring the nations, or the people, or those wives. Bring them to Jesus. As Solomon failed to bring his wives to the temple, we're not to fail to bring people to Jesus, our temple. Anything less is idolatry. Another thing I'm sick and tired of, I guess it's because it's part of the church to gain status, is the gospel that invites people to a God who will give them stuff. I'm not talking about peace and joy and happiness. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm not talking about materialism. I'm talking about, come to God and you get heaven. Come to God and you get to meet your dead grandpa. When you get to heaven. Come to God and be blessed with wealth. What are you doing? You're, you're developing idolaters who come to God because they want stuff, not because they want Him. I mean, how often... You don't hear this from every pulpit uh, that, that preaches a heaven because Christ is a center. It's just heaven because it's a wonderful place. You get to meet your dead friends. It's reunion. So bring people to Jesus. That's the point. He's the temple where to bring them to to find restoration. Everything else, idolatry. Number two, find your status your status, because we all want status, it's built into our nature, but we're to find our status in Jesus, not in things or in self. So become content with Christ. Begin to open up to Him, let insert yourself in His story, trust that He's in control. Trust that His being glorified will give you the greatest status you can ever inherit in His kingdom. Our status is just different. It's not us thrusting ourselves in the world culture. It's Christ thrusting us with His name on us in world culture. Hey, I'm not saying that shame on you if you become an NASCAR driver and become famous. That's not where I'm going. But we're not to our, we're not NASCAR won't make me happy because now I'll be somebody. You're somebody in Christ and Christ may desire to use you through NASCAR to exalt His name. So it's okay that you might grow up and become, I hope to God, that all of you become popular because that would be great if you get a bunch of good Christians out in the world. So the fact that you have status is important, but where are you locating it? In the fact that I'm accomplishing this or in the fact that I'm Christ's, and He's doing this through me. So find your status in Christ. And then number three, live only. Only. Live only in God's story, not anybody else's. Solomon literally adopted his wife's story. He, de- he developed their worldview. He developed their way of looking at life, so he built them temples. He worshipped with them. He integrated their idolatry with the israelite culture and he had a mixed story only god's story he lost vision of god's story because he lived in another story hence if you guys live in your own story if you guys live in the world story if you guys live in this sex saturated story if you guys whatever your mind is shaped whatever culture you're living for whatever your story is if it's not god's story Using you to bring restoration to the nations, it's idolatry. If the life that you live is not God's story, it's idolatry. Hence Solomon as our prime example. So, in summary, we must never, never, never pursue status amongst the nations. We're pursuing restoration amongst the nations. And the only way we can accomplish this is by bringing them to the temple. What Solomon didn't do. Bringing them to our temple. Jesus. No other means, guys. I don't care about strategy tips and whatever. and Selling the gospel. To make people buy it. It's Jesus. Jesus is nothing. They don't want him. Don't. It's not for them. So, let's pray. Father God, we ask for your name to be exalted and to be glorified, and your story to be stamped upon our lives. Let us not live in idolatry, Father, rooted out of our hearts. So Spirit of the living God, I pray that you fall afresh on us, mold us, melt us, use us, fill us. We pray,